This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name's Richard Porry and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Thank I'm you. excited about our Donald Trump uh, v. Joe Biden election podcast, which you are now listening to. Oh, I was going to say, this is it, isn't it? Yeah, this great. is it, yeah. There isn't another one. <laughs> there isn't another one. Um, there will be one next week where we will reflect. But yes. this week, we're going to have a look forward. So we will get to the news. Um, pretty newsy. Certainly this morning, but pretty newsy week uh, here in the UK. We're then going to talk to friend of this pod, friend of ours, certainly friend of the new European printed product, uh, James Ball. Um, and uh, and after that, we'll be speaking to uh, John Kampfner. He's a writer for us, of course, and the Times broadcaster, commentator. Uh, he's written a book called Why the Germans Do It Better. Uh, is it a football book, Steve? It's uh, it's not a football book, but they do do that better as well. <laughs> and then we will be speaking to the fabulous Bonnie Greer. Um, barely needs an introduction, does Bonnie Greer, of course. Playwright, um, political commentator, columnist from day dot for the New European. So she will be joining us um, a little bit later on as well. But let's, oh, and of course. I, I, re- I really enjoy the way you said she needs no introduction and then and gave, then gave her an introduction. One. Yeah, yeah, I did. I fell into that sort of local radio show <laughs> trap. <laughs> Didn't I there? 
Um, yes, I think that's where our future lies. <laughs> she needs no introduction. And I will give but her I'm, one. But I'm going to give her one anyway. I'm going to yeah. give her one. She doesn't need one, but I'm going to give her one. I'm going to yeah. add some value. She's brilliant. I love Bonnie. She was fantastic when we did the live pod. Yeah, um, she's, she's wonderful. Um, so, uh, and then we will crown a Brexiteer of the week. And I can assure you, it won't be Bonnie Greer. Um, so uh, let's get to the news, Steve. What tier are you in? Uh, I am in tier one. Oh, um, I have you... to make a lightning raid on tier three. <laughs> oh, no. At some point over this weekend. Are you going under the cover of darkness? I am. Uh, well, I th- we're, I th- you're still allowed to go to tier three, aren't you? I mean, as 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 you sure. know, as as Italy, France, Spain, Germany, aka the sensible nations, all locked down, we can still go wherever we, we want. I, I, I understand that I can still go to the pub in tier three as long as I order a, a, a full English breakfast or full roast dinner or something like that. It's, it's extraordinary times, isn't it? But I'm really taken with the idea of um, tier... There's now tier one plus, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is absolutely remarkable. It is. Um, I think that is tier one plus is opposed to tier plus one, which is when you've already got a free ticket to COVID, but and you're allowed to bring a guest <laughs> to COVID. Um, and I'll just wonder how much longer, you know, how much they can stretch this, the government, because they're also talking about tier three plus, aren't they? And whether they want a rebrand. I don't know if you're aware of this, but. Um, but last year, Virgin rebranded their economy. There's always been Virgin economy, hasn't there? Then there was premium economy, and then there's sort of, you know, I think they, they call business class upper class, don't they, Virgin? Mm-hmm. But last year they rebranded economy, um, just economy on three different levels. And if you did COVID, if you did the tiers like that, tier one now would become COVID light. Like it, yeah. Tier one plus, if it was like Virgin Economy, would be COVID classic. Got it. Tier two would be COVID delight Ooh. because they call actual economy now economy delight. <laughs> um, tier three would be would be premium COVID, ah. and then any tier three plus has been suggested would be upper class COVID. And Richard Branson, I think, would sort of hire a limo and drive you to hospital within that so so exciting rebrands to look out for it's i'm i'm you know i'm who does um who does covid's pr i don't know is it i don't know is this the pr for covid has been bad but not as as covid's pr been bad or has it been who's been worse pr covid's pr people or dido harding's pr people <laughs> i was thinking that you know there are certainly some some government comms experts who who might want to might want to see if they can get a job with covid you know because uh it, you know it's been it's been pretty bad at number 10 maybe now's the time to get out and and and, and work with a, a you know a, a process that is actually doing what it set out to do Get into the pocket of big COVID. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Um, there is a lot of serious stuff to discuss. Obviously, I mean, well, I mean, COVID you know, is not is not um, is not. If we do if enough. we don't laugh, we'll cry when it comes to uh, COVID. So you know, um, obviously, more worrying 
um, increasing cases, and with every increasing cases, there is an increase in deaths, and that's a terrible tragedy, of course. Um, it seems like, like you mentioned there, G- Germany's closing its bars, I think, for until the end of November. I think we're expecting similar from Macron. He will have spoken by the time yeah. you heard this, but he hasn't spoken. Bars and restaurants have closed, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. so um, we're going back to full-on lockdowns in in most parts of Europe. That doesn't seem to be something that's massively on the on the cards here to me. I'm not hearing a lot of people, a lot of people talking about it. But it doesn't seem like there's a lot of political will for it. We seem to be carrying on with these, with the local lockdowns. And yes. the really worrying thing, of course, a lot of people, I think someone from Sage was talking, um, I think it was earlier today, saying that the, the death toll from the second wave could actually be 85,000. Now, I know, and I actually agree with the worst, talking about worst case scenarios, because those are things that bounce people into doing into doing things and trying to, you know, help and stop the spread. So that hopefully is a worst case scenario and it will be far less than that. But um, the the suggestion is actually that the peak will be longer um, than, uh, than the initial outbreak. So, but the, so it will be, the peak will last longer. So the the cases or deaths on a day to day rolling basis might not be as high as they were before, but over a longer period of time. Um, and the other suggestion, of course, is that that peak, that long peak, will be right in the middle of the, the Christmas period. Yes. Um, there was a lot of talk coming out of uh, Number 10, certainly, but other areas of government as well uh, in the last, well, maybe, I don't know, a month, six weeks ago, saying, you know, w- there will be a relaxation of the rules over Christmas. Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. We'll get to a stage where we can go, right, we've got this far. For the next week, everything. I mean, c- can we? Can we actually? Um, you know, Boris has said, Boris Johnson has said twice during this pandemic, it will pretty much, you know, don't worry, it'll be over by Christmas. And both times he said it, I remember thinking, do you know what, that come back to haunt you, mate. And I can't see it. I honestly cannot see yeah. um, that we could sensibly and safely lift all restrictions by Christmas. Steve, what do you think? Uh, I think it would be a strange thing to do. I'm wondering whether... They, the government feels like their options have been closed off by Keir Starmer calling for a circuit breaker lockdown. Um, I think, I think you know, when you look at the developments elsewhere, um, a circuit breaker lockdown is probably what is needed. And look, we, we, we're going to see, aren't we, you know, the effects of, you know, if, if, if cases slow uh, much, uh, slow up. Um, in Scotland, in Wales, and also in um, Italy, Spain, uh, Germany, and France, then I think it's going to be very hard to to resist um, some kind of national lockdown. I'm I'm wondering whether we're heading for some kind of lockdown towards the the middle of um, November, anyway, that will be lifted temporarily in, at the the middle of um, December, so we can get on with an orgy of spending, eating, and drinking. Um, it's really hard to, to to know what is is gonna. It, it was in the minds of this government. Um, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think there are lots of interesting things politically about this. You can see the um, in all polls, Labour are creeping up on the government. The government are either losing support 
or um, or our level Labour are, uh, are ahead in a couple of polls recently, still behind in another couple, but rising in the polls uh, among older people, uh, Labour, who are obviously very concerned about COVID, uh, Labour uh, and Keir Starmer uh, appear to be um, attracting more and more support. And um, I, just, I, I, just, I just wonder. And I also think that some of the the kind of the outlier stuff that we've seen. So we had, so we've seen people like Isabel Oakeshott, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer, who in August and September were saying there is no way that we're going to see, you know, 200 death days again, and we're not going to see mass cases again. And and here we are, um, that is happening. And um, I, for, for, for purely professional reasons, I read the Daily Telegraph, um, uh, newspaper every day and I look at their online stuff every day and the wave of crazy the wave of denial that there would be a um, any kind of second uh, wave or that it would be as bad as the first seems to be ebbing away um, and um, and we're down to an argument now about whether it's for you know we stay open just purely for financial reasons and balance that against lives lost um, you know balancing jobs lost and businesses lost against lives lost which is another argument altogether but I, you know these are these are um, unprecedented times as they say mm-hmm. um, what about the local lockdowns are they working is there any evidence they're working without one to sound like an anti-vaxxer <laughs> well I, I mean there isn't any there doesn't seem to be any real evidence no. that they're working it, does they, you know, they're, they're... So, so that leads me to ask, is, you know, would a national lockdown work anyway? Well, well, exactly. I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, in some of the places where, in some of the places where the toughest measures have been in place, there is some evidence of it working. Um, I don't think what's happening now is affecting anything. You know, you're seeing a rise everywhere, aren't you? All across the country, yeah. it's for all the all the reasons that we discussed last week. Um, you know, the spread of university stu- students going back to university has been a big one, hasn't it? But cases were rising even then, and kids going back to school. But cases were mm-hmm. rising even then, um, and they are rising even in the even in the areas that, that some Tory MPs are harumphing about and saying, you know, well, in Norfolk and in the the southwest. Um, you know, we, we we don't have these kind of this level of cases, but of course, cases are live, rising there all the time. The other day, you know, here in lovely Norwich, three people died at, at the uh, at the general hospital here of, of COVID related um, illnesses. So, and we are seeing as well, and this is a, another example from from Norfolk. You know, we're seeing uh, small areas that maybe are, are serviced by or a lot of jobs in one particular factory or, yep. um, you know, I wouldn't, there's no need for us to name any specific factories here on this podcast because it's happening throughout the country. But there is a, a food manufacturing firm. Obviously, people work very closely together and they've got a heck of a lot of of, um, of cases there. And then that pushes up um, you know, it's all come from that one source, but it pushes it up for every everyone else. And of course, these people are out in the community as well. So, yes, you know, I think there are certain areas, and, and the east of England is certainly one of them that have thought, "Oh, we're a bit immune to this," and we're not. You know, no one is. It is a, it is in more densely populated areas. Of course, it's going to take hold quicker. Um, but once it takes hold, it takes hold, doesn't it? And um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really it's really tough to know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is, but 
the government done either, and that's what the worrying thing is. Because that's, that's, the, that's the very worrying thing. Yeah, kind of paid to do. Uh, let's get on to the other big news. Yeah, because um, I think that you know, before we talk to James and we start get, doing this deep dive into the, the the U.S. election, or or as deep a dive as it's possible for two shallow people to to well, do. I'm going to say, I, I, you know, I, I I know about U.S. policies. I know a great deal about it. So my dive would be into one of those pools where you used to, you know, when you went out of the changing rooms in old-fashioned swimming pools. Oh yeah. A tiny little pool for just to wash your feet in. Bathe, to bathe your feet, yeah. That um, would, um, that's my sort of pool, and there'd always be some kid in there. <laughs> Kids loved it in there, didn't they? Just lying, just lying down, having a little splash. Yeah, yeah. there would be. Yeah, <laughs> stop messing about. Um, um, before we do all that, you know, it it is. I mean, it's been a, a, a week that has reflected really badly on the, the the big political parties in the UK. We talk about the the. Tories and uh, free school meals which last week we sort of said this is this is an issue which hadn't been picked up by the mainstream press um on Thursday morning it's certainly been picked up by the mainstream press um after we recorded that podcast Friday and and all through the week Marcus Rashford um versus the government uh round two it's not gone particularly well for the government um first of all though I mean Labour's what Keir Starmer described as Labour's day of shame on Thursday. We we sort of knew this was this was coming. We didn't know what, what the findings would be. We we thought that they were likely to be what they are, which is um that the um that the um the report of the Equality and Human Rights Commission has found Labour responsible for three breaches of the Equality Act and its handling of complaints of anti Semitism between the party. They they said that there was political interference uh, within the office of the leader of the opposition. And so Jeremy Corbyn was ultimately accountable and responsible for what happened in the time. Keir Starmer made a lot of noises, didn't he, that you would expect. He said he wanted people like Luciana Berger to return to Labour and he apologised uh, to Jewish people and promised nothing like this would ever happen again. What we didn't really expect, I think, was the response of Jeremy Corbyn Um which is what, uh, and he said, I regret that it took, uh, what he said, one anti-Semite one too many. The scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party. And that has led people to, and Keir Starmer was asked at his press conference, you know, so should Jeremy Corbyn be disciplined? Should he be thrown out of the party? So I'm asking you, you know, Will Keir Starmer move now to discipline uh, Corbyn, even to try and expel Corbyn or members of his circle? And if he doesn't, what will it say about Keir Starmer and about the period when he was supporting Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, I think I'm not surprised by this. Uh, I'm not surprised by by the findings in the in the slightest. Um, I am still, however, completely disgusted with the Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Um, firstly, I'll tell you what, I, I was when this was coming through, I was talking to an esteemed colleague outside and we were shocked by Corbyn's response. So shall I just read what Corbyn initially said? Yes. Um, I regret that it took longer to deliver that change than it should. Yes. One anti-Semite is one too yes. many. Here's the key bit. One anti-Semite is one too many, but... Yeah, there's a but. Yeah, why? What? Why? What? What? Are you joking me? 
There's a but. There's a but. One anti-Semite is one too many. But the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party. Jeremy Corbyn still doesn't get it, does he? Not on based on that, no. He still doesn't understand what the problem was. And still going, and and Ken Livingston um, has done this as well, um, on the back of this, saying, you know, I am vehemently anti-racist. Well, yeah, but but you say one thing and you do another when it comes to anti-Semitism. This was a party during the Corbyn years. And you know what? I'm going to, I might even start referring to Jeremy Corbyn's, the Jeremy Corbyn years as the Labour Party, because it really wasn't the Labour Party, as far as I could tell. Certainly not in the upper echelons. It was flooded with entries, dangerous left wing entries. And I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone who's a Corbynista. Actually, you know what? I'm not. Don't like Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn's Labour was an absolute shambles that didn't hold a really crap government to account and is as much to blame about the complete Brexit chaos that we're about to face as the Tories. They're as bad as the Tories when it comes to Brexit. But on re- with regards to this, Keir Starmer needs to, um, I think, I hope, it might have even happened by the time you read this, but if I was advising Keir Starmer, I would be saying to him, get rid of him. Get rid of Corbyn, because nothing is going to change here. You need to prove that you're the boss now. You don't want Corbyn's lot in the party. They're toxic anti-Semites from the evidence we've got here. And, um, And to properly turn a corner and prove that Labour is no longer that Labour, they need to get rid of him. He can stand as an independent next time and sod him. Goodbye, Jeremy. He, honestly, he needs to get rid. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I don't think that he will get rid. Though, no, I the, don't the, think he will. I don't same, think he will either, but he should. He, sh- he should. Yeah, you know, and there was a... Remember when, there, when Corbyn won and there was three months of noise about um, whether Tony Blair should be expelled... Mm. Uh, from the Labour Party. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a complete, that's an absolute complete nonsense. What Jeremy Corbyn and per- people within the leader's office have been have, have been found to, they've been found, and also Labour has got to enact these by I think sometime in, or they've got to put a plan forward by sometime in the middle of December. And if they don't, then there could be legal action. Um, and Labour, of course, will do that now under Keir Starmer, and quite rightly. But this is this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff that this report has found, and it has found that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour were um, anti-Semitic. I'm not suggesting that you know. I tell you what else I feel sorry for. I tell you what else I feel sorry for people who supported Jeremy Corbyn, people who believed in Jeremy Corbyn, people who went out there and knocked on doors for Jeremy Corbyn and thought that Jeremy Corbyn was uh, the answer to what was been pretty awful decade of politics in Britain, frankly, you know, a crap coalition, some crap referendums. I could see why people, especially young people, I could see why they would put hope and I could see why the left would want a a good, strong leader like that. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't that. So I'm as angry for those people, which I politically disagreed with almost throughout, but it's fine for them to have that belief. And they stood up for him. They said he's doing his best on anti-Semitism. He's trying. Well, clearly he wasn't. Those are the people I'm almost more annoyed for than the, you know, the people who are now coming back to the Labour Party that felt displaced by Corbyn's, the Blairites, et cetera, et cetera, the most centrist people, of which I count myself as one. I almost feel more, because we were saying that. We can now say, we told you so, 
It's those people who I feel were conned by Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. Um, I feel dreadfully sorry for them. And I hope that they understand now and wake up and go, Do you know what, I'm annoyed by it as well. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, on the uh, on the Tories and the and the FSM thing, I think what has been most remarkable about this isn't um, isn't isn't Boris Johnson saying I totally understand the, the idea of holiday hunger. I, I think that he probably thinks that he's it means that he's quite hungry to just go on his holidays again. But <laughs> but, but it has been this idea which is shared by people of the right, and I've never really understood it that if you give people money through welfare they will um they will instantly spend it on um lot widescreen TVs um crack uh <laughs> fancy cars i don't know what i, I don't know what else video games etc cetera, etc cetera, rather than feeding themselves um and um and and we we just we just see that and you know, Ben Bradley, we mentioned last week, his Twitter bio says he's the first blue brick in the red wall. And I think there's a serious misspelling there. Um, he uh, he has said that um, previous uh, FSM vouchers have effectively uh, sent cash direct to a crack den and a brothel. I mean, the idea that, that drug dealers will accept free Happy Meals or, or <laughs> meal deal vouchers from Sainsbury's uh, from feckless parents is, I mean, I don't know. Maybe things have changed since, <laughs> since my day. But uh, you know, who can, who can, who will forget the scene from uh, from Scarface when Tony Montana sold a kilo of prized cocaine for, in exchange for a hundred thousand chicken ticker wraps from Tesco's. Say hello um, to my happy meal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, ben Bradley also said uh, he told one constituent that he was concerned because um, previously some uh, food vouchers from Aldi didn't necessarily have to be spent on food. Um, he said they could be spent on scuba diving gear instead. Um, <laughs> But this idea that another favourite of the working class, <laughs> exactly, um, and and also a mention for Gary Sambrook uh, from Birmingham Northfields, he tweeted apparently if you disagree that vouchers is the only way to solve poverty, this is what happens, uh, and then he shared an image of a graffitied wall which said, uh, "Do you remember? Have you seen this picture? I haven't seen it. It said Gary Sambrook eats big dinners. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen." It. Somewhere else on the wall, it did say scum, which I think is probably what he meant. But Gary Sambrook eats uh, big dinners. I mean, the, the, that's this... the best way to attack. That is the best way to attack this this Tory government. Just keep saying they eat big dinners. I love Gary, that. Well, we are, we know now that Gary Sambrook does eat big dinners. Eats big. Um, I mean, this again, this again. I, you know, I'm as angry about this from from a just from a competency point of view as i am about labor because no that's not true actually it's nowhere near true but but the thing is the what an own goal we said this last week i know but what an own goal for the government to 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 score there's a great cartoon i didn't know who it's by this week but it's it boris johnson throwing a ball hitting marcus rush from the back of the head and then and the back of the head and it going back in in the goal behind boris johnson and that's exactly what this is a massive own goal and um you know, I, already I've spoken to a group of business men and women out in uh, out in this part of the world earlier in the week who are getting together to already start putting pressure on the government to make sure that this doesn't happen again at Christmas. 
you know, so this isn't going to go away. No, while it's, it's got go someone away. like, while it's got, you know, Mark Strasford, not only scores hat tricks in 16 minutes and, uh, you know, but also as the government on the run, this sort of new national treasure um, involved in it, it is not just going to go away. And I think if the government have really gone, we, we've just decided that we're, we're not going to bow to celebrities on this and, and that's the end of it, it just seems a bit short-sighted. I think for a government that's U-turned before, they should have just gone, and we said this last week as well, didn't we? But they should have just gone, right, now, for, for this half term, for Christmas, perhaps even for spring half term, we're going to do this, then we're going to look at it, then we're going to put other things in place. I mean, I'm dubious as to whether free school meals forever and ever, full stop, is that, you know, in the holidays is the way to deal with it. But right now, for a government to score such an own goal, it just, it, it, it beggars belief as far it as does. I'm concerned. Hey, We're talking about bowing to celebrities, we've been, <laughs> we've been joined by James Ball. Hi there. What an intro. Uh, how, how, did, how to describe James Ball? Writer for the New European, head yeah. honcho of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Pulitzer Prize winner. A winner of the Pulitzer Prize. I'm going to have to slip you both a fiver for this again, aren't I? Best-selling <laughs> author of The System. Yeah. Um, which I believe has got a different title in America, James, hasn't it? I think it's it, called, it, James, it called it, James Ball and the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> it's called The Tangled Web We Weave, which uh, makes it sound like it should be a kind of uh, gritty thriller. Um, and alas, it is not. What is, what is the for people who've not read it yet, what is The System before we start talking about Donald Trump? So it's about the the internet and how it really works and uh, why it's making everyone who is already rich and powerful even richer and more powerful and screwing us all over in the middle of it. Mom. And obviously it's uh, got suggestions to fix all of that immediately and easily. Great. Okay. Well, you can check that out. Um somebody who uh, who has who has been become even more rich and powerful from because of the internet is, is clearly the, the the president of the united states um and you've written about him again this week uh and you know i think that the question that we're that we're, is on everybody's lips is that when the polls say it's going to be biden and when all the early voting suggests that it's going to be joe biden why am I so worried that it's going to be Donald Trump again? And and can you put my mind uh, at ease? Uh, I suspect I can't put your mind at ease, <laughs> but um, it's because when we've been wrong, especially when we've been wrong and it's really kind of come as a gut punch, we are really, really wary against it a second time. It's the old fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And most of us got 2016 wrong. Um, you know, in the UK, most of us didn't predict Brexit. I actually got that one right. And most of us Me didn't too. predict Trump. And I got that one very wrong. Um, and so when we look at something that looks like the same pattern a second time, we just sort of feel like it's going to end the same way. And we actually had this in the UK where most of us got 2017's election wrong in that we thought it was going to be a conservative landslide and it wasn't. And so in 2019, when every bit of evidence pointed more strongly that it really was going to be a Tory landslide this time, most of us ignored that evidence because we'd been fooled before. Yes, that's true. Um, mention of Fool Me Once um, has, 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 has recalled that fantastic interview with 
George Bush when he, do you remember when uh, George W. Bush, rather than his his dad, where he said, it's like the old saying, uh, fool me once, uh, shame on shame on you, fool me twice, we won't get fooled again. You forget that he forgot <laughs> the second bit and started <laughs> quoting the who. Um, yes. Let's just go over some reasons why people are worried about Trump despite what what you say and and uh, one by one and and please shoot these down for me if you if you can number one is the idea that there are lots of shy trumpers um out there which is um which is a great phrase shy, uh, shy trumpers who that's who why don't... i keep putting my mic on mute actually yeah. <laughs> shy trumpers who don't want to tell that they're too embarrassed to tell the pollsters that they are voting for donald trump so, I mean, there's just basically there's never been any evidence of this effect. Um, they don't think it was a case of this in 2016 where people were lying about how they'd vote. They think they actually just um, made sampling errors, uh, basically to do with the fact that educational status has become a big indicator of how you'll vote in America now. And it didn't used to be. And pollsters weren't correcting their groups for it. Shyness is not really a trait you associate with Donald Trump or most of his supporters. Um, and so in the UK, there used to be a shy Tory effect. Yes. Uh, we don't really have any good reason to think there's a shy Trump effect. Um, you know, we the people who vote Trump are usually pretty happy to tell you they do so. What about the idea which we mentioned with uh, Peter Kellner last week or, or a, a couple of weeks ago, which was this uh, notion which is is coming out of the Republicans, and I guess there's an element of, well, they would say that, which is the, the Republican Party have been very keen to say that they are signing up uh, hundreds of thousands of, of voters who have never um signed up before either to vote or as registered republicans um and that that will in some way affect the vote as you know the sort of the, the missing million uh uh affected the the referendum in in 2016 you know when dominic cummings uncovered all of these people who'd never voted before yeah it's it's an interesting argument this one um there's actually way more registered democrats than there would be in a usual presidential election too both parties are sort of succeeding not just in signing up people to vote for them but in the us you can actually register saying yeah. publicly you know i usually vote democrat i usually vote republican we don't really have an equivalent of that here but you'd expect that in an election as polarised and partisan as this one. It's quite a strange election to be someone who actually votes and be a neutral and kind of, you know, a centrist on this one. Um, it's sort of unusual to expect a big boost from new voters for an incumbent president. If you've got to get people who don't usually vote out in big numbers, that would usually be 2016 it's hard to picture there being too many millions of people who stayed home for Donald Trump in 2016 who'd roll out for him in 2020. These people will exist, but I don't think there's that many of them. Um, there's also an idea that stuff like the Hunter Biden nonsense and the uh, Joe Biden's so-called gaff over transitioning away from oil is is 
is having a bigger effect on the race or is res is resonating with people um, in a way that you know is not reflected by coverage of, of the mainstream media uh, do you think that there's anything in those things at all they they're beginning to sound a bit desperate about these things to me just just as a bit of a brief bloody hell have you seen the breaking news wow no tell me jeremy corbyn's uh, been suspended from the labor party Hooray! Oh, wow. He has done it. As discussed only his absolutely disgusting <laughs> statement today, he's had wow. the whip removed. Wow. You bloody hell. We bought simply about 30 seconds before you come on, James, we said that is what should happen, but it probably won't. And yet here, as we are recording, dear listener, James Ball brings us breaking news. Bloody hell. Sorry, I, I just kicked out to Jeremy Corbyn. That's I mean, amazing. And the right on, thing to do. I mean good on Kia. What do you think? Just well, let's break off from Trump just briefly, yes, James. Well, we've got you on that. What, what, just give us a quick a quick thought on that. Was it the right thing to do? Uh, absolutely, the right thing to do. I think I think there could have been a justification for not expelling Corbyn just based on the report. The report talked about huge systemic failings. Said they came from the leader's office at the top. That he's out. You could have seen a quiet life, but Corbyn's statement minimised anti-Semitism and accused people of weaponizing it again. It was a disgusting statement. It made it very, very clear that the anti-Semitism that came to infect Labour came from the top. And so I think Kia had to act off that or no one would believe the party has changed. Absolutely fantastic. It's got to be civil war. Uh, I was yeah. just I'm just looking now on the PA, the newswire. So Labour Party spokesman said, in light of the comment, in light of his comments made today, and his failure to uh, retract them subsequently, the Labour Party has suspended Jeremy Corbyn pending investigation. He has also had the whip removed from the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, obviously, you guys will get a lot more reaction to that before you even hear <laughs> this, <laughs> this podcast that will move on somewhat. But I will keep an eye on this as we're, as we're going along. But there you go. That is, that is big news and the right thing to do. I think that sends a really strong message um, from Keir Starmer's Labour Party um, to... to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, doesn't it? And I wonder how, well, I mean, I wonder how calculated a move it is on the part of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, you don't, I, I, I'd be stunned if he was surprised by the reaction, uh, what the, the Keir Starmer's response to this. Um, and, you know, when he issued a, a statement like that, and clearly they've gone to him and, and, and asked him to retract it, and he's not, he's refused to do so. So um, so maybe there is an element of pre-planned civil war in this. But I think, it, you know, it was the right thing. It became the right thing to do the minute he issued that statement, didn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think, I think had he not issued the statement, Corbyn might have just been left to quietly go. Yeah. And if this was Corbyn picking a fight, of all the grounds to pick it on, the fact that you led a party which became so racist it broke the law... Uh, I think is probably the right the right sort of that's not the fight you want to pick to sort of split from or pick a fight with Kia, is it? Amazing, incredible. Um, so, so before we before we we had that enormous breaking news, uh, we were mentioning Hunter Biden. We were mentioning the oil thing. Do you see any of these as, as having influence on the race in in, the, in its final days? And also the, the sort of the big Trump rallies that we are seeing now, which contrast very sharply in terms of 
um, in terms of imagery with the, the restrained stuff that Biden is doing? So poor state authorities are actually tracking outbreaks to each place Trump visits <laughs> because lots of people go in close proximity, not wearing masks. And so he is a one man national super spreader event, um, which is is ridiculous. But I think it's quite interesting when Trump was on debate stages, he was talking about these scandals that clearly most Americans had never heard of. He's sort of lost his ability mm. to talk beyond the Fox News bubble. That doesn't mean that stuff like the Hunter Biden kind of story has no effect. It probably helps mobilize his base and probably gets people who might otherwise just vote for him to donate money or to go and door knock. But Biden isn't Hillary Clinton. He doesn't work very well as a um, hate figure. Um, he polls pretty well. His favorability is quite high. You know, he's sort of the, the vanilla ice cream of president. He's no one's favorite person, but dirt doesn't really stick to him. And so I don't think the kind of smear operation has worked nearly so well this time. Mm. Yeah, but, I agree, actually. That's a really interesting point. And um, although a friend of the pod, Fredo Rockwell, um, check him out on Twitter if you haven't already, would disagree that no one likes vanilla ice cream. Um, the The... <laughs> That, that's a good point. He's sort of like the friendly uncle that's no one's favourite family member, but he's always welcome to come around at Christmas. Yeah, exactly that. He's not the racist one who you sort of have to shove at the far end of the table and try not <laughs> to talk to him too much. He's fine, you know. Everyone's everyone's all right chatting to him for 15 minutes or so twice a year. Yeah, Absolutely. Whereas Hillary Clinton had, had been hated by a large section of America for about 20 years. Um, before she ran for president, and you know the, the 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 I mean I was out there just before the election, and uh, and some and and I've been out there several times before, and the vehemence with uh, while well, she was running, and the vehemence uh, with which people talk about Hillary Clinton, even people of the left, is um, quite quite amazing. Um, talk, tell me about social media because obviously. Twitter and Facebook particularly were huge for Trump last time. Um, and it, it, it feels that that is not a factor this time in the same way. I suspect Facebook's being used just as much as last time. They, they actually tried to make a rule saying that no new yes. political adverts could run in the final week. Um, and Trump's got around that by running a whole bunch of new adverts with almost no promotion eight days before, including some quite worrying ones like Trump won a second term, which you might clearly want to, you could see him putting out at two or three in the morning to try and claim victory prematurely. Um, so I hope they take action on that. The social networks have tried to do a lot more this time around than they did in 2016. Um, if anyone who uses Twitter will know, it's really annoying trying to do a retweet at the moment because mm. by default it makes you quote tweet. That's something just for the US election and will be gone next week. Um, but I think Facebook ad spending on both sides will be a lot higher this time than in 2016. It's just that this time round, that's kind of how you do politics. Um, and so I don't think we're quite so sort of scared of it because it's become so normalised. Yes, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, tell me about what you'll be doing on the night. Then will you be going to bed early, or will you be um, will you be um, up 
bleary-eyed. So, well, I will be uh, staying up to uh, file for uh, next week's New European. Uh, we uh, I am doing an election night special, so I have to file by 8am, so hopefully we'll have a clear result by then. Um, I think the one unknown factor in this election night is usually net TV networks call US elections long before the votes are counted. It's completely bizarre to us here, but it's a little bit like when the 10 p.m. BBC exit poll goes goes up. Everyone just goes to bed and goes, right, well, you know, the exit poll says that we know the result. This is going to be a different one because different states have different rules about when you can count mail-in ballots. Yes. And Trump's campaign has been trying all sorts of shenanigans to delay or prevent their counting. We suspect on the day voting will favour Trump and mail-in ballots will favour Biden. And so the risk is that we get a very confused picture on the night and it's not that clear who's won. And Trump tries to leverage that in very similar ways to how George W. Bush did in 2000 and used the Supreme Court to kind of steal an election. Um, the sort of hopeful sign on that is that will only work if the election's close. As it is, Texas is in play, hmm. which is, for anyone who knows US politics, absolutely mad. Texas should be among the reddest of red states. It's got 38 electoral college votes, and there is an outside chance Biden might take it. We're expecting Biden to win Arizona, which again is a strange thing to be saying. He's got a very good chance in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. If Biden's looking like he's heading towards a landslide, Trump still might sound off and refuse to accept the result. But you will see Republicans in that world very quickly ditching from a great height. And so really, you know, it's going to be a shit show. Sorry uh, if we can't swear. Um, come what may, but the least sort of messy situation is a Biden landslide because then at least Trump will get ditched. And um, just, I mean, I think you, you've written about this this week, but there's been a lot of speculation about Brexit if if Trump wins and loses. Uh, there's this speculation that if Trump wins, it'll harden people's into into going for a no deal Brexit, which will be, you know, sort of um, tempered slightly by a, a, a large trade deal with the US or the, the illusion of a large trade deal with the US. Um, Conversely, if Biden wins, they will try and um, claw some kind of deal with the EU and try and ease the tensions over the internal market bill and the border in, uh, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Do you see it making any huge difference, no matter, no matter who wins? I, I don't think when it comes to Brexit, Trump or Biden makes that big a difference, especially if the House remains Democrat. They are always going to need to pass mm. a trade deal through Democrats who are always going to worry about the Irish border. There's a lot of affinities there. Um, I think a trade deal is vastly unlikely under either president. Um, Biden would want the same kind of chlorinated chicken, hormone-fed beef type agenda that... Um, that sort of other people would. Uh, so, you know, Biden or Trump, I gotta want that stuff. It's gonna drop down a, a priority list for Biden. So, you know, 
the trade deal goes from very unlikely to very, very unlikely. I don't think either president would really intervene to punish Europe if we had any kind of no deal. So I think we're trying to sort of exaggerate our importance in the world. We're just not very high up either US president's priority list. Sadly. <laughs> Sadly. Um, well, it's going to be an amazing night. I'm just checking. Joe Biden is going to win, right? Uh, well, I, I have I have uh, put my uh, colours to the mast on that and said he is absolutely going to win. What's, so what's, I, what I, will, uh, I will do a sackcloth and ashes apology if it turns out I'm wrong. Uh, and for what it's worth, uh, my money is on him getting 330 or more in the Electoral College. Oh, wow. Fate tempted... Wood is being touched I'm here. This one, aren't I? Yeah, it's a pleasure to uh, it's a pleasure to have you on again, James. Thank you. So thanks very much. Guys. I'll let you go and tweet about Jeremy Corbyn now. James yeah. Ball, our breaking news. Which I can see he was doing during the conversation, listeners. Yeah. But anyway, he can do he can do multiple things all at once. I actually left that conversation to take a quick phone call um, from from a, a, a current Labour MP, and I've got to tell you. They are delighted, <laughs> absolutely over the moon at what happened um, about 20 minutes ago uh, with Jeremy Corbyn being uh, suspended from the Labour Party and having the whip removed. I imagine, like you said, though, Steve, uh, Jeremy Corbyn will be revelling in this because there's nothing the left likes more than a civil war. Um, so strap in. So excellent news, Steve. We have been bo- We have been joined by the wonderful... Bonnie Greer, massive friend of the New European and a big friend of this podcast as well. Bonnie, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Hi. How are you guys? We're very well. We're very well. Um, well, I guess we. I guess we should probably start by asking you, as our as our um, American in chief, I guess. What 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 do you you think? We're we're less than a week away now. Do you feel that getting rid of Trump is in touching distance, or are you still worried? Well, you know, I always tell people that, you know, they call it the general election, but it's actually 51 general elections because the states and the District of Columbia elect the president of the United States. So you get a majority of votes and then you're awarded X number of votes that then go into this thing called the Electoral College. And if you get 270 of those votes, you are president of the United States. So uh, the big battleground states now are the upper Midwest, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, that Hillary Clinton lost, Donald Trump won. Uh, A state that's kind of in play, which is sort of shocking, is Texas, which hasn't voted for a Democrat, I think in 30 or 40 years. What's this, Georgia? Not since Jimmy Carter, I don't think. Exactly. Arizona is in play, which is also shocking because Arizona used to be a place where you went to retire. So that's how the Republicans always won. And now you new families and, you know, young millennials are moving in. So that's all in play. And Georgia is in play, which is another shock. Um, But that has to do a lot with the metropolitan regions of Georgia, like Atlanta. They're starting to come out. So the tricky part is Florida, of course, because they they have a saying in Florida, the further south you go in Florida, the the further north you are, because South Florida is 
a lot of people who've retired from New York who tend to be more liberal or university students. And North Florida is really South Georgia. So it, it's in that kind of red Southern thing. And then we've got the old Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. That is what uh, uh, Donald Trump shockingly was the shocker that he won. And they are in play. It's very tight, especially in Michigan, uh, where uh, uh, Joe made that little gaffe about fracking. And you know, these people, uh, my dad used to be, a, a, my late dad was a steel worker. And they're very, very, um, they're very, very tight in terms of the culture of steel. Not only that, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the unions, all of that. And they voted twice for Barack Obama and Joe Biden, but they went for Trump in 2016. And they still may go for him again because he's bung them a lot of subsidies. Uh, he's promised to keep oil, gas, all of that. So we'll see, but that's what, that, that's the battlegrounds right now. What do you think a, a, a Joe Biden presidency would, would mean for America? And, and specifically, what do you think Joe Biden could do to, to put a break on this wave of tragedies that we see unfolding uh, and, uh, and generating more and more heat? The most recent one, obviously, in, involving um, uh, Walter Wallace Jr. In, in Philadelphia. Yes. I think one thing is... Uh, Joe Biden can return uh, the American people, or I should say, return the federal government to the American people. The federal government exists in order to protect and help the American people. And what Donald Trump has done is made it his own personal fiefdom and let everybody, let all the states fend for themselves. I mean, some of that has even been caught on tape uh, with his son, Jared, talking to Bob Woodward. So he will return the federal government to the place where most Americans understand that the federal government should be as a protector of first guarantee. And I think also the second thing is that uh, Joe Biden, uh, and, and he will get pressure from within the Democratic Party and the caucus to really look at police reform. I mean, part of the problem uh, with police reform are police unions, uh, which have evolved from really protecting police in the kind of lobbying and self-defense uh, organizations for the promotion of the police by, you know, by whatever, whatever they do. That's always the big um, uh, defender. What you got meshed up into this is Donald Trump's base. And Donald Trump's base are white working class men. And what Donald Trump does is perform a type of masculinity that these men like. Donald Trump will lean on a podium in a crowd as the president of the United States and say things like, I'm working my ass off, which for Americans is not a thing that the president says, but certain guys, certain people like that because it shows authenticity, it shows realness. So they feel very emotionally attached to him and he plays on the emotion. There are two lovely, I mean, powerful videos out that I would urge everyone to see to understand this. Uh, they're both voiced by the great actor Sam Elliott from you know, Big Lebrowski and Roadhouse and all of that. And 
they're put out to talk directly to this demographic, which I think is also the same demographic that supports Brexit. It is that white working class male who feels that he's being outpaced, outplaced, uh, not listened to, uh, doesn't have a seat at the table like he used to, certainly doesn't have a seat at the head of the table. His family uh, is changing. Uh, his children are different. His wife is different. So Trump uses words like housewife, which I haven't heard for decades in reference to anyone except a drag queen I know who likes using the word housewife. And, you know, it, it, he uses all these buzzwords to endear these guys to him. And also the other thing is that the Republicans tend to vote on the day. So we don't know, uh, because voting in the election began three weeks ago. So we don't know what's going to happen on the literal day of November 3rd, if there's gonna be a red surge, if something's going to happen. So it's all pretty much up in the air. I don't care what, what the polls say. What you wanna pay attention to are the local polls in the battleground states because the president is elected by the states. And it looks, I mean, it, it looks a bit, I think it was always, always going to narrow, wasn't it? But there is some, oh, yes. Oh, yes. there are some oh, things yes. I'm, you know, I'm worried about. Pennsylvania is, yes, yeah. where he was 10 points up. He, it now looks like Biden's up by sort of five. Michigan Florida. Is, Michigan's that, tight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, down yeah. to, you know, seven and five to now it's two. But but the thing is, he can afford if he can if if <laughs> if he gets Arizona, if he gets Texas, if he gets Florida, he can afford to lose one or two of those, but not much. Yeah, I I, I still I still can't believe in I still can't believe in Texas, um, but maybe yes, maybe well, yeah, that's that yeah, me either actually. But Arizona looks good. It does look good. What do you think another four years of Donald Trump would would mean for America? And and you know, if he was tempered by, if he was tempered by Congress, even if if the if the Democrats do well there, but he still manages to to win the Electoral College somehow, then then what would what would another four years of, of Trump mean for America? Well, it would mean, first of all, an enormous amount of litigation, because if the Democrats, the Democrats will hold the House, uh, they'll probably win the Senate. Uh, but then that means Trump will be governing by executive order, uh, which he can do, which will entail the Congress going to the Supreme Court to ask if the orders are legal. Uh, the president is in charge of the federal branch of the government, so he can stack He's always stacked the court, but he can also, uh, uh, his justice department, the justice department is his justice department because he names the attorney general. And so uh, um, what will be is four years of total stalemate and chaos because nothing will happen. Um, and Trump doesn't actually care as long as he doesn't lose the election, but also the most disastrous part is that the United States has the highest number or close to the highest number of people dying from the coronavirus. And Donald Trump has farmed out the response to the coronavirus to the states. So you've got 51 responses to this, this national uh, health crisis. That's gonna kill more people and there's no doubt about it. And the, the news over here seems to have settled on the idea that that COVID is a polarizing factor in this race and that 
Donald Trump's supporters seem to buy into the idea that it is all a if if it's not a hoax then it's it's being overplayed um and you can see that from these events James Ball was just describing them as super spreader events because they've, That's what they know, are yeah um but they but the thing is Bonnie that they look so great on TV <laughs> and, and it really yeah. wor- it really worries me does that does that do you think that's going to have any sort of effect or do you think that that Biden might have already COVID might already have won this for Biden uh, earlier on with older people uh, voting for, for Biden who previously would have been Trump? I think what we don't understand here in Britain that's very important is that Donald Trump has been a media celebrity and been on television for 30 years. I don't even know what the equivalent, who would, who in Britain would get himself or herself elected leader of a political party and then be prime minister who's been on TV for 30 years. Nobody exists like that. Also, we have the parliamentary system, so you have to go through that. But so Donald Trump is a fixture in a lot of people's homes. Uh, uh, They think he talks back. And a lot of people like that. A lot of people like that. They love that he talked back to Hillary, who was seen as an elitist, as somebody who was just too big for a boost, they couldn't take her anymore. So they love the fact that he talked back. They love the fact that he does things like, you know, I'm working my ass off. He, they love the paranoia that he displays. They love the fact that he's not correct, that he, uh, eats, you know, they love it. Um, and so he's endearing to a lot of people. And they also feel, you know, that he somehow, even though he's a, a, a well, I don't know how much money he's got, but he he performs a billionaire, let's put it that way. They love the fact that he's a billionaire because a lot of people like rich people. They may pretend that they 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 don't, but they like rich, self-made people. So Trump fits all of this. Also, he said that he loved the poorly educated. And, and what that means is he loves people who didn't go to Harvard. Princeton, Yale, Columbia, who don't live in LA, who don't live in New York, who don't live in, and that, and that is a large group of Americans who resent that class of people. I mean, even I cringed when Michelle and Barack would go summer on Martha's Vineyard. You think, oh no, don't do that. But that's what they do because that's what they are. <laughs> so people, um, there's a group of people who, who really, and they're in this country as well, resent the intellectuals, professionals, uh, because they think they're being told what to do by them, being overlooked by them, being told that they're stupid. And Trump plays to that, and he plays brilliantly to it. What do you think the future is for Donald Trump if he loses the presidency? Well, if the Attorney General of New York has anything to say about it, it'll be sing sing. Um, (laughs) You know, other than that, um, he'll be in litigation. He'll be in uh, uh, litigation forever. Um, and uh, and he'll just be fighting various district's attorneys. But certainly uh, there would be an investigation into his links with China because I can remember seeing um, uh, uh, Trump goods and shirts and things and certainly stuff that Ivanka has done that says made in China. So we need to check that out. Uh, but definitely New York State has got him and they're going to come for him as soon as they're able to get through to him. 
Well, it's a lovely, uh, it's a lovely thought, um, Bonnie. Um, <laughs> I, I, I I'm cautiously I, optimistic, but you know, you never know. You just never know. We are once again daring to dream. Exactly. Never we, forget. Never stop dreaming. Never stop dreaming. Bonnie, <laughs> it's a great pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you. And so thank you for dreaming. asking me for this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. What a superstar. Bye-bye. What a superstar, Bonnie. Bonnie is, and um, that was wonderful to hear her, hear her thoughts there on the on the US election. And I think we can go straight to our next guest. Um, John, are you there? Yes, I am indeed. Ah, oh, fantastic. Wonderful. That was <laughs> John Kampfner is, of course, a writer for the New European, also uh, for the Times broadcaster, commentator. Um, John, we've just been talking to James Ball and then and then Bonnie Greer. You maybe just caught the end of there, and we're we're going to speak about your book, and we're really interested in your book um, in a little while. But um, how nervous are you? Because we and Bonnie and James are a little bit nervous. How nervous are you that we might still end up with another four years of Donald Trump? Well, I put I've got money on it. Um, somebody about three years ago said to me, "This was Trump was about a year into office." And I won't say who it is, but it's somebody sort of involved in politics and public life. And he said, I confidently predict that Donald Trump will be impeached or something else will happen and he won't complete his first term. And I said, no chance. He's going to see out his first term and I'll double it uh, and I'll say that he'll win re-election. And um, I was fairly confident that that was uh, going to happen. And then obviously COVID um engulfed the world from the start of 2020 and it's become axiomatic now to say that Trump is going to lose will he I still think that Biden will prevail I think the most likely scenario is going to be this gray area in which if Biden prevails but by only a bit then this will go to the wonderful new Supreme Court dominated by Trump. And we could well end up with a Trump by default, which would be the most dangerous of all the options. But if I had to stick my neck out, I would quietly predict, simply because of the number of people who have pre-voted and physically, and in that way it's not contentious, that Biden will win and he might win a little bit more confidently than people are predicting. Ooh, fingers crossed, John. Um, is there... I'm not normally known for my optimism because I, <laughs> I predicted Trump, Brexit and Marine Le Pen and she let me down in 2016-17. So, um, but I'm slightly sticking my neck out on the slightly optimistic scenario, which given everything else that's going on in the world, uh, you've got to be optimistic about something. Do you think there's, do you think there's one defining moment that's, that has summed up Donald Trump's presidency and 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 is there any you know is if he does lose and I, I think we're all hoping that he does lose apart from for your wallet's sake John <laughs> is there any is there any positive legacy at all that he leaves behind uh, other than just an abject lesson in not in how not to be the president of the United States there, there isn't one particular moment that I think defines Trumpism because every time you think there is something that is definition or something else uh, comes its way and and knocks it off. For me, it's the image of this angry Trump sitting on his giant bed um, in the West Wing, uh, eating his McDonald's or whatever else he's 
he's eating and watching Fox and Friends and taking his cues and, and furiously tweeting away stuff with capital letters and lots of exclamation marks. And the, that is the picture that will define this presidency. To your point about has everything been terrible? Well, again, I'll be a little bit unfashionable and say, no, not everything. Um, he, his enough is enough approach with regard to China, I think has been really interesting. Mm. I mean, as ever with him, he's done it in the most lewd and unprepossessing and unattractive way possible. But it has made a difference. And if it is Joe Biden that takes over, or the, my other prediction is that maybe Kamala Harris will be president uh, sooner than, than we might realize, but whoever it is, um, the China policy has been reset. And although as a result, it's a more dangerous world, I think it was right to have done that. And there are many aspects of the Obama legacy, particularly in foreign policy, and him saying a line in the sand uh, with regard to Syria, and then that being crossed and doing nothing about it, and his and everybody else's, Britain, France, Germany's, everybody's kowtowing towards China um, was abject. It was only reinforcing Xi Jinping's idea of, well, I can just sort of literally and metaphorically buy up Western countries. And so, yeah, I do think that was important and it was necessary. That's uh, that's that is um, that is interesting um, because, you know, <laughs> people of the left, I guess, don't really have a good word to say about him. I, I, I do think there is uh, I think there's a, a lot of a, a lot of merit um, in that, even though it's been done in traditionally uh, Trumpian, clumsy, uh, clumsy and undiplomatic ways. Um, on on Tuesday night, then, what are you going to be doing? Are you are you going to stay up to to watch this? Are are you going to uh, await the the worst um, in the morning? Or uh, and if you are going to stay up, what are the the things that people need to to look for? I'm going to stay up um, with my family. We're all um, going to be sort of uh, ready and rearing. I don't know if we're going to make. Um, hamburgers or veggie burgers um, to uh, mark the moment. Um, I think we'll watch CNN because you don't get that sense from British broadcasters uh, or other broadcasters of that sort of on the ground feel. Um, sadly, my um, uh, cable provider doesn't provide Fox News. It would be quite interesting uh, to watch that as well. But um, no, so we're watching it and the really important results apparently are going to be coming UK time, one, two in the morning, you should get a sense then of what's going on. Will it be either side or will it be chaos? And then in the early hours, either side of breakfast, I will be filing a report for a newspaper called The New European. Yes, me too. Me too. I think it will be the. I think it will probably for that reason. It will probably be the most sober um, American election that I've. That oh, I've I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I might get get one or two in. Yes, I'm. I'm certainly hoping so. Um, just 
turning to your uh, to your book then uh, why the germans why the germans do it better um there is a theory that the government the, the the british government would be happy with a trump victory for various brexit related reasons for for germany a, a trump win would be a disaster wouldn't it why is that i mean it would be i mean most so sober and sane countries and or governments and i would leave the british one out yes of that, are desperately hoping for a biden victory but no more so than germany because the whole post 1945 and the whole post unification thinking for germany was two things one that america was its guarantor of safety and security it was also its sort of emotional and ideological lodestar which was obviously problematic when during the vietnam war it was obviously problematic during the iraq war and that huge sense of affection towards america which they felt with john f kennedy with bill clinton with barack obama can equally turn very sour very quickly but it's a very close and it's a very intense emotional uh, relationship the um at the same time, the other sort of pillar of, of what makes modern Germany in terms of foreign policy and identity is the rule of law. It's multinational, multilateral institutions. It's that sense of a stable world. And Donald Trump, not to put too fine a point on it, does not represent that. And it's almost they will put up with anything as long as it's stable, it's mainstream, it's grown up, and they know how to behave. And Trump absolutely went for Angela Merkel in the first term. He was more rude about her than he was about any politician pretty much in the world, maybe Sadiq Khan, but um, he was absolutely vicious about her the whole time. And he sent to Berlin a guy called Richard Grinnell as his ambassador, who was just a sort of Fox News presenter on speed and was just outrageous about Germany the whole time. He's now been rewarded with a top job back, back in Washington. And Trump uh, has been trying to get in another, his a successor ambassador, who's even worse. So uh, it, if Trump does win, it will be absolutely vicious towards Germany, but it's more dangerous than that. I would say that the future of NATO is at yeah. stake future of the European Union is at stake. He, this is where he has common cause with Vladimir Putin, his friend, in absolutely undermining both the institutions and the values of Western Europe. And four more years of Trump, in which he'll be completely unleashed, uh, will, you know, it's not too fine a point to say that the future of Western liberal democracy is at stake. Wow. Well, that's a small, a small... <laughs> Which I think is more important than my 50 quid, by the way. Just Yes, <laughs> it's just a trifle. I mean, the, the, he has no relationship with Merkel whatsoever, does he? No, I mean, he just tweets about... He couldn't stand uh, when Time magazine made her yes. person of the year. He went absolutely ballistic. He just found that as a sort of personal insult. No, he has none at all. And she's a remarkable person. She... Um, she says, one of her biographers describes it as total impulse control. 
she absolutely never lets rip at people um but her body language does all the talking next time uh, you or listeners have the chance to look at a video of merkel with anybody that she finds um how can i put it somewhere between repellent and problematic just look at uh, sort of her body movements and trump is absolutely one of those boris johnson is another one putin is another one and she just finds she just can't get it into her head why people act like that in the way they do what do you think conversely what, what do you think a, a joe biden presidency would mean for for germany and for europe well just by not being trump it will yeah. mean a lot but beyond that there's a lot of um sober expectation management around biden i mean some of these if you strip away the trumpian hostility and behavior um there's a lot of aspects of american foreign policy towards europe that will stay the same there are some that will change so it seems very likely that sooner rather than later biden will uh rejoin and re-engage with the jcpoa the european uh deal the european and american deal with iran um for suspending sanctions in return for uh iran not pursuing nuclear ambitions which trump ostentatiously walked out of and interestingly the brits including boris johnson which has been a great relief to the germans who otherwise don't think much of him the uh the brits have absolutely stayed close to the french and the germans on that so you have an absolutely open division between the three european nations and america but i think biden will um return things to normal on that and he will certainly one of the very first things he will do i'm i reckon within weeks of taking over uh, if he did in january is to um reaffirm the paris climate agreement yeah which trump walked out of and that again will be a very more than symbolic be a very important point but on other aspects i think there will be continuity I and mean, the general withdrawal in all senses of america from europe will continue the pivot towards asia will continue and essentially the europeans are sort of uh, accepting that and there both the french and the germans have produced a uh what they call an indo-pacific strategy which is basically asia and australasia and they're going to get the eu to uh fall behind that as well and the brits are planning something that while it'll be separate because britain will be out the, the eu won't be very different to those so there's an acknowledgement that the big action is taking place in asia and so america is this sort of big brother um comfort blanket is no more in Europe at the same time as i said before the china policy will stay tough and there will be an expectation on the europeans not to hug the chinese too closely russia will be interesting i think uh, a hawkishness towards russia the americans are very agitated by the german russian pipeline nord stream 2 which is close to being started now and the Trump administration has slapped sanctions on companies that are engaging with that I'd be surprised if Biden 
changes that policy. So I think there'll be more tension there. But even where there are differences, and there are always differences, there are differences with administrations that get on as friends and allies. I just think the whole behaviour, the whole dynamics will be different. And just before we let you go, John, your, your book is subtitled Notes from a Grown-Up Country. What do you think it would need for Britain to become a grown-up country? And, and is there anything that German, the, uh, Germany can learn from, from Britain, other than, other than, as we say, another example of how not to do it? <laughs> no, there is a lot. On the flip side, I mean, my book is, you know, the, the title uh, is very binary, and the, the book isn't. Um, I mean, it's, it's clearly saying that Germany is a, is a beacon. It's doing a hell of a lot of things well, but there are a lot of things that Germany doesn't do so well. Um, it's very behind on tech. It's, it's a very clunky economy uh, in which it's very difficult for startups to get going. It feels kind of old and old fashioned. Uh, and that's all by German admission themselves. It takes a long time, you know, slow but steady is the German mantra, which was very much personified by Merkel, which obviously has its pluses. You know, we'd have none of this sort of bombastic nonsense and, and crazy decisions. Everything is thought through. It's very deliberative, but it can also be slow. And, you know, there's a lot of the sort of creativity and tech side of Britain that the Germans really do respect. Um, the, I mean, everything about Britain's image at the moment is tied up with Boris Johnson in that, you know, he was the architect of Brexit. It's arguable that without his leadership of an association with the 2016 Leave campaign, it wouldn't have won. So along with the technical success there is the um the sort of ignominy of being associated with that the germans cannot get their heads around brexit they cannot both the fact of the referendum result but also the chaos that ensued their their general questioning is always well if you put a question to the people with two possible outcomes surely you prepare for both outcomes don't you and the fact that literally nobody had a clue the day after the leave vote is not something that would ever really take place in modern Germany. So it's about personality in Boris Johnson, but it's about more than that as well. I've always argued that Brexit was not the cause of anything. It was a symptom of a much wider malaise in political culture and in political systems in Britain. We sort of continue with our sort of rule Britannia, make it up as you go along type approach to politics, which again, uh, Germans find bizarre. And Brexit and COVID in their different ways have really shown up the structural weaknesses in, in Britain. And uh, sure, we can get rid of eventually Boris Johnson and whether it's Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer, or it's usually somebody who at the time of predictions, nobody has predicted. Um, but fundamentally, it's my argument that Britain's sort of sense of sort of atrophication will continue until we do something quite dramatic with our whole political culture and political system but there doesn't seem to be anybody in any of the main parties that's willing really to embrace that yeah no. fascinating that is stuff true. 
Fascinating stuff, John. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Your book, Why the Germans Do It Better, um, is out now. I believe the Times called it excellent and provocative. The FT said it was highly readable. The Guardian loved it as well. So I think for anyone um, who is... Do you remember what the, um, what the Telegraph called it? I, did, I was going to leave that, John, but if you <laughs> want to tell people... <laughs> Brexit revenge porn. <laughs> well, I guess that's probably going to... Our listeners are going to love that just as much as... When we, um, when we put the paperback out next, uh, next spring, we're going to put that on the cover. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, it really is a smashing book and it's an absolute pleasure, John. Um, I hope we'll, um, we will uh, get to speak to you again soon uh, and we can hopefully look forward to four years of Biden rather than four more of Trump. Thanks so much for your time, Cheers John. To that. All the best. Steve, we have had a, a, a multitude of superb guests today, haven't we? It's been great, really great. But, but now we've got a crown of Brexiteer of the Week. We certainly have. Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back, Steve. It's, it's time that you crowned a Brexiteer of the Week. I will. And first uh, among Brexiteers is Councillor Glenn Thompson uh, from South Town- Tyneside. He was a Brexit party candidate. I think he's now running as a, an independent and he is one of many Brexiteers angry about the news which broke this week that British citizens won't be able to use the fast track electronic gates for EU citizens at airports and ports in Europe after the 31st of December. He said this was just spite, nothing else. Um, and you, you do wonder if, um, if Glenn will now march on uh, his local David Lloyd and uh, demand to use their uh, tennis courts, despite the fact that he's not a member of his local David Lloyd. He, he might well be, but you, you know what I, I mean. I wonder if it's, uh, if it's fine for Glenn if the EU citizens use the, the ones that are for UK passport holders. I don't understand where pe- how people are confused about this. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? I don't get it. I, just I, demand get it. To u- I demand to use your sauna, not despite the fact that I'm not a member of the local uh, it's sports like by- club. It's like buying a season ticket for Huddersfield Town and being annoyed when they won't let you in the Stretford End. I don't understand. Yeah, it's uh, it is something. Daniel Hanan, uh, the brain of Brexit, is as a fixture in this uh, section. He was in it last week, and he has tweeted. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Richard. It was absolutely amazing. Fishing is currently a tiny fraction of our economy, but there is vast growth potential in using fishing, cosmetic and health supplements. Bones, scales, guts, heads, enzymes, almost all can be monetized. Holland Grimsby could be reborn as pharma hubs. And I love the idea that, you know, Britain, Brexiteers said Britain was going to be the new Singapore. It was going to be an incredible tax-free place, which would bring in all these entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And and now our ambitions are to become a mighty fish guts uh, <laughs> cosmetics hub, a bit like uh, Dr. No had a, his, his island was built on guano, wasn't it? Dr. No, the Bond villain, his empire was built on guano. It all does sound a bit fishy. And you do think, do you not think other nations have, have thought of this before Daniel Hanan thought of it. And, and of course they have, you know, there is a small trade in cosmetics that is made from fish scales. And of course there's a trade in stuff like, 
cod liver oil, but the idea that fish guts are going to turn us into the new Qatar is a bit fanciful. And, and do you know why? It costs an awful lot to create high-value products um, out of these things. And most of, of fish meal, which is the bits that aren't a fillet of fish, and most of fish oil all goes to feed farmed fish and prawns and fish stocks are disappearing in in any case what daniel hanan is proposing is just not going to happen um it is i'm afraid to say a red herring uh, for daniel hanan daniel hanan has had quite a week on twitter he's i mean i'm not going to go into his tweets this week but there's been some I mean, I know there are every week, but this week has been... I've spotted a few on my uh, timeline. Check, check Daniel Hanan out. He seems to have... I don't know. He just seems to have, you know... He's always been a little bit Brexity, but he seems to be really going headlong into it now. Um, the Brexiteer of the week is our, our mate Liz Truss, though. Ah. Uh, Truss, obviously, in charge of the Department for International Trade. Um and the, the, the tweet of the week that was even sillier than Daniel Hanan's fish guts um, explosion was uh, they tweeted, the Department for International Trade tweeted, the bakers used a lot of soya sauce on the first challenge on the Great British Bake Off. So it's a good thing that it will be made cheaper thanks to our trade deal with Japan. And then She's people, obsessed with this. <laughs> people asked how it would be uh, cheaper than our trade deal with Japan, be made cheaper by our trade deal with Japan, because at the moment we have a zero tariff deal with Japan via the EU. And in fact, the EU brings in a lot of, uh, the UK brings in a lot of soy sauce uh, via the Netherlands, where tariffs are going to make it more expensive in the event of a no deal Brexit. And there's going to be all kinds of paperwork anyway. So actually, quite a lot of the soy sauce that we bring in is going to be more expensive anyway. The Department of International Trade took this on board. And then they tweeted, under WTO terms, the tariff on soy sauce, soy sauce is 6%. Under our deal, they will be 0%. And then people said, well, that's not really cheaper, is it? Because it's 0% now and what you're talking <laughs> about. And then the Department of International Trade tweeted again. To clarify... <laughs> Thanks to the UK-Japan trade deal, soya sauce would be cheaper than it otherwise would be under WO terms on which we would be trading with Japan from the 1st of January if we had not secured the UK-Japan trade deal. If you have to tweet, issue two clarify, <laughs> clarifying tweets about something, I, I think you, you've probably yeah. lost the argument. Um, but the main thing that I've got to say about this is who the hell says soya sauce it is soy sauce. soy sauce, even though it might be made from soya, it is soy sauce. Um, but we're actually getting the same dealers now, but a better one than we would get on WTO rules. And these are, of course, the same WTO rules, which Brexiteers have been saying are marvellous and nothing to worry about. So Liz Truss and her uh, busy tweeting finger uh, are the Brexiteers of the week. We... Um... Liz Truss is an MP in uh, my part of the world, and I am a political editor in this part of the world. So I get a lot of stuff sent to me from Liz Truss. Very rarely is it to do with work she's doing in her constituency. And about three or four times last week, I had uh, press releases from her talking about Japan. Um, yeah. I've got to say that no one's really that interested, Liz. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's soy sauce. So that was the congratulations. It was a bumper edition, wasn't it? 
Well, we, we had a very proper bumper edition last uh, week as well, but we've had the, um, rather than just me and you rambling, um, although Liz Gerard was brilliant last week, this edition has been filled with quality content and quality guests. Um, so what should the listener do right now? Well, if you enjoyed it, please leave us a great review on your podcatcher of choice. Go and buy the new European print edition, a fantastic uh, orange Trump crossed out front cover from Chris Barker. Uh, we've got two deals over on the new European website. If you want to subscribe to the new European, www.theneweuropean.co.uk, you can get the next 13 issues for 25 quid. That saves you 14 quid. Uh, and that's a six-month deal. Or if you want a rolling subscription, it's £6 a month for the first three months, then £8 a month thereafter. That will save you at least £4 every month. If you go to tneshop.co.uk, you can buy TNE merch, including uh, TNE face masks. Um, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European and you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Or you can follow me at Porritt, P-O-R-R-I-T-T, which leaves me only to say thank you to our wonderful guests, James Ball, um, Bonnie Greer, uh, John Kampfner, and, of course, behind the scenes, our producer, Matt Withers. Uh, Steve, thank you as well. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr Campbell... Play your bagpipes. Here you go. Crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.